Well, we continue today our tale of two kingdoms with one of the most familiar stories Jesus ever told. Familiar story to both believers and non-believers alike. The Good Samaritan is such a widely known story that the term has become an idiom for those who demonstrate unusual sacrificial kindness toward other people. For this way of relating to one another is a definite characteristic of God's kingdom. The story depicts God's kingdom as one comprised and saturated with boundless love. It is a story about how one inherits eternal life and enjoys God's kingdom forever. And that is the question that initiates the conversation to which the story of the Good Samaritan is the conclusion. Jesus tells this story to the lawyer to graciously give this man the the opportunity to see his sin and his need for a Savior. And so we pick up the story in verse 25. The conversation goes like this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test and saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus had been teaching from one locale to another, and most recently expressed to the disciples the greatest of all truths was that their names were written in heaven. Jesus went on to link heaven and eternity to himself, and he rejoiced that it is by God's gracious will to reveal the truth about himself and eternal life to little children, to those who humbly receive and believe his gospel. A lawyer, which is Luke's term for a scribe, who fits in the category of the wise and understanding that Jesus referred to in verse 21, stands up to test Jesus. The people had been sitting, they'd been listening to all that Jesus had been teaching, and the idea of standing up and testing was was common and and is somewhat of an aggressive move on the part of the lawyer. It was not necessarily a friendly inquiry. The lawyer intended to trip up Jesus. He wanted to catch him. He wanted to make a fool of him in front of the others to somehow and in some way invalidate all that he had been teaching. The lawyer asks, though, the greatest question anyone could ever ask. How do I inherit eternal life? That is the greatest question to ask. And it is the greatest question not only to ask, but to make certain you can answer this temporal life is not all there is. Not one of us should rest until we know the answer to that question. This was a constant thought of the Jewish people. They often thought about the life to come, the the resurrection of the righteous. Assurance of achieving this, inheriting this was a desire of most. Here the lawyer perceiving religion as that consisting mostly of good works asks, what must I do? What act must I perform to inherit eternal life? This is reminiscent of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Luke 18. What work must I do to inherit eternal life? And immediately we see that the lawyer has the wrong view about inheriting eternal life. He's, he's looking at what he could do to merit eternal life rather than recognizing his inability to earn it and crying out for mercy to Jesus to receive it. In Mark 12, Jesus told a scribe that he was not far from the kingdom of God. 
Because in that scribe's response to Jesus about the greatest commandment, he explained it with the emphasis of the whole disposition of the person rather than just some mere performance of a religious task. The scribe in Mark seems to recognize the the impossibility and his own inability to be able to earn and inherit eternal life. The lawyer here in Luke 10, though, doesn't seem to get that yet. Immediately, Jesus turns his question back to him. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer knows the answer. He is an expert in the law of God. He is a student of God's Word. He recites the Shema at least twice a day and most likely has it written on his forehead in the phylactery that is attached to his head. The phylactery would be a headband with a box, and inside the box was the Shema, which is a recitation of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And so, he turns and asks him, how do you read this? He points the lawyer to the source of truth. He points the lawyer to God's Word. It's not the laws that have been concocted by the religious leaders. It's the law of God that is written in Scripture. The answer is there. Jesus turns the lawyer to their shared source of authority, which is indeed the Word of God. And in this way, the theme is shifted from the teaching of Jesus Himself to how the lawyer understands the law. It is now His view which is tested by Jesus. And so in verse 27, he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer answers with a combination of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and a recitation of Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5 says you'll love the Lord your God with all of who you are. And Leviticus 19.18 says you will love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 28, he said to him, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, it's not enough, as is common throughout all of Scripture, it's not enough merely to know something, but we have to take what we know and put it into practice. See, theology is practical. We live out what we believe, and what Jesus is saying, do it. You have the answer. You know how to inherit eternal life. So do it. Do it always. Do it unhindered. Do it in a boundless way. Never stop doing it. And do it perfectly. So Jesus affirmed his answer. Again, the lawyer knew the answer. He knew the commands of the Lord. He knew that life came from following the Lord's commands. And and so Jesus answers the question about inheriting eternal life with an affirmation of those commands. And then says to do it always, always without hesitation or break. Love the Lord your God with all of who you are. Always, without hesitation or break, love every single person as you love yourself. Do this perfectly, and you will indeed inherit eternal life. Now, do we do this continually? Do we do this in unbroken pattern? Do we do this perfectly? Does the lawyer? Are we capable of, of doing this perfectly? Is the lawyer? See, herein we get to the heart of what Jesus is doing. Jesus has just confronted this man on his inability to earn eternal life. Oh, sure, you can earn it. Be perfect. That's it. That's what you do. 
You love the Lord your God with all of who you are perfectly. You love every other person as yourself perfectly. No mistake ever. And you will earn eternal life. See, love God always completely. However, as James 2.10 reminds us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And what the story of the Good Samaritan then exemplifies is the impossibility of loving others perfectly. The best response of the lawyer would be humility. It it would be the, the recognition that he is inept and unable to meet God's standards. And we get a glimpse of the mindset of the lawyer in another parable. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We see this in Luke 18, 9 through 14. In this passage, he he says to the parable, he says it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's, That's the characteristic of the lawyer. He was one who trusted in himself that he was indeed righteous, that he met the requirements, that he could do enough to earn favor, to merit being in God's kingdom, to merit and to inherit eternal life. And so two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. I thank you that I'm not like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He trusted in his works. He he trusted in in his own ability to inherit the kingdom. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The verdict? Who is justified before God? He goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man humbled himself. He recognized his bankruptcy before a holy God, and he did what must be done to inherit eternal life. He pleaded with God to be merciful. The kingdom of God does not consist of people who have earned their way in. There is no one who merits entrance into God's kingdom. Only those who have humbly seen their ineptness, who have humbly seen their inability and depend solely on the merciful, boundless love of God will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This was the response Jesus was looking for. But... In contrast, verse 29, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Once again, we see that the lawyer's motives are not right. In response to Jesus' questioning and answer, he desires to justify himself. He's still depending on himself. He's still thinking there's something he can do to be right, to merit, and to earn eternal life. 
Rather than humble himself, he proudly seeks to justify himself. He seeks to question the extent of the command to love one's neighbor. See, over time, the Jewish restrictions had come to the place where one's neighbor merely referred to a fellow covenant member. And so if this was a truly restricted command with limited reach, then maybe he could attain it. If we just shrink the circle a little bit, bring it in just a little bit, and then I could love what I would deem the lovable, those of which I kind of put some requirements on, I can love that person, I can love that person, I can love that person, yeah, I can do this. And you might think to yourself, wow, that's ludicrous, that's ridiculous. Well, don't we do that, though? Thank you. How often do we say things, maybe not audibly, but in our minds, well, they don't respect me. I restrict my love. Well, they don't really love me, so why should I love them? There are often times we have particular people that we put some requirements on that we choose not to love. And the lawyer is seeking to limit this understanding of who the neighbor is so that he might indeed justify himself. See, he believed he was loving the Lord his God perfectly, implying that he was loving people as well perfectly, because if he's loving people perfectly, he would be loving God perfectly. See, there's a, a direct connect to the way we relate to one another to what our view of God is. If we're not loving others, then we're not loving the Lord. And so there's a direct connect there, and the lawyer, to a certain extent, doesn't necessarily see that, believes himself to be loving the Lord as God with everything. He seems to be thinking that he's loving his neighbor as he should. And so, unless Jesus has some different definition of a neighbor. And so Jesus replied with one of his most memorable and powerful illustrations, the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, we have an unnamed man. Most believe by implication that this would be a Jewish man, but Jesus does not tell us directly, mostly because the man's not the issue. The man in the ditch, he's not the main point of the story. And immediately, Jesus turns the lawyer's question around. The lawyer is focused on the object of his love. Who is my neighbor? Jesus zeroes in on the subject, the person responsible for being a good neighbor to others. The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it says. And from Jerusalem to Jericho, that was going from 3,000 feet above sea level to 1,000 feet below sea level. That's about 4,000 feet within 17 miles. It's a fairly steep road. You add to that that there are caves and there are many switchbacks, and you create an environment that makes it easy for robbers to hide and wait. And as was all too common, the man fell among robbers. And these robbers stripped him and beat him. They took all that he had, including his clothes. They laid upon him such a beating that he's characterized here as half-dead. And they left him there in that condition without a care of what might come of him. 
And in verse 31, it says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I want you to notice the phrase, now by chance. It just so happened that a priest came by. This is the best possible news. I mean, this would be likened to eating dinner, choking, and finding out there's a doctor at the table next to you. You're stranded on a remote location, on a road, and the very next vehicle that comes by is a mechanic in a tow truck. <laughs> right? You'd be telling this story. i got to tell you guys what happened today. I was stranded in the middle of nowhere. Car broke down. Would you believe it? A mechanic came by in a tow truck. Isn't that awesome? See, that's the idea. It's the sense that the, the people listening to this story would say, oh, there's a solution. A priest came by. Out of all the people who could be walking by, it's a priest. So everybody certainly would think, because he's familiar with passages like Leviticus 19.34 that says, you'll treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Or even Exodus 23, which teaches and gives instruction that you rescue even an enemy's donkey if it's in trouble. He's a righteous man. He's astute in the law of God. Unexpectedly, though, he passes on the other side. Is there a reason for this? Nope. None's given, because it's not the point of the story. The man was in need, and the priest avoided him. And so likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So in like fashion, a Levite came by. A Levite, being of the tribe of Levi, was responsible for less important tasks at the temple and could be thought of as a priest's assistant. He, too, was a righteous man. Like the priest, he avoided the man, he passed by on the other side. Now the tension in the story is mounting. Who is going to save this man? And you can imagine that the audience was thinking to themselves, well, you know, Jesus may be speaking against the religious leaders. This is an indictment against the religious leaders, so certainly the hero is going to be an Israelite layman. That would be the hero. Oh, that'd be a great story, Jesus. But to everyone's shock, Jesus says, Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And it's interesting to note that in the original language, they shift the word order so that the word Samaritan is actually the very first word you read. So if you were to actually read it, literally it would be Samaritan, but a. Uh. And the point of that is to shock the audience. Now, why would that be a shock? Part of that, we need to understand who the Samaritans were, especially with respect to a re Jewish religious leader. The ethnic tension between Samaritans and Jews was intense. Not long before, James and John even urged the Lord to call down fire from heaven to destroy some inhospitable, no, yeah, you know the word, uh, Samaritans. The hatred between Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years, and it, it centered around racial purity, because while the Jews had kept their purity during the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. And so in the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were compromising mongrels. They were half-breeds, if you will. 
The Samaritans had built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, only to have it destroyed by the Jews some 100 years before Christ. So in Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and utterly ruthless. The rabbis used to say, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. The ultimate insult came in the Jewish prayer that concluded, and do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Yeah, you can begin to imagine the shock of Jesus introducing a Samaritan, not as the villain, but as the hero. It is the Samaritan who went up to this man. It is the Samaritan who had compassion toward this man. It is the Samaritan whose heart went out to him. And this would cause major shock among the audience, especially the lawyer. So rather than avoid the injured man, verse 34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The man had been stripped of all his clothing, so the Samaritan tore his own clothes, maybe took clothes out of his bag. He used his own clothes to bind this man's wounds. He took his own wine, and he took his own oil, And he uses the word pouring to intimate that he did this lavishly. He did this generously. He used the wine as an antiseptic, and then he used the oil as a nice, soothing balm to this man's wounds. He set him on his own animal. It means he then probably walked the rest of the way to the inn. He stayed with the man. He took care of him. And he even stayed overnight, for in verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And depending on the quality of the inn, that could have covered up to a month, maybe two months worth of room and board. And if that wasn't enough, he would cover the rest upon his return. And so, in effect, he wrote this man a blank check. He loved this man indiscriminately, without concern about who he was or what he had done. See, Jesus' parable here teaches us not to discriminate in our love. We do not, must not, limit our love to particular people who fit any particular requirement. It does not matter who a person is, what they have done, are doing, or what people like them have done or are doing. God models this in the gospel. There's not one person who is lovable, meaning that there is a person out there who possesses some characteristic that necessitates a loving response from another. See, Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. And the point of this story is the man's generosity and care, it knew no bounds. It was indiscriminate, and it was unlimited. He cared for the stranger the way most of us care for ourselves. That's the kind of limitless love that it takes to earn one's way into God's kingdom. Jesus told this story so that the lawyer would see his inability to love like that. And that he would humble himself and he would ask God for mercy, depending not on his righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness. Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, has been turned to who proved to be a neighbor to another. 
The lawyer replied with the obvious answer. He, he said, the one who showed him mercy. The neighbor is not so much the object of my affection. It is me as the subject am I neighborly to others. Am I a good neighbor? And Jesus said to him, similar to what he said earlier, you go and do likewise. Jesus says that only by continuously perfectly loving God and every neighbor on every occasion, even your worst enemy, could the lawyer satisfy the commandments and inherit eternal life. The point of Jesus is not no one is capable of that kind of love. Jesus makes his point elsewhere in Matthew 5, and he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have to be perfect if you're going to earn eternal life. The only proper response for the lawyer and us is to acknowledge our inability to save ourselves and to plead with God for mercy and forgiveness. Jesus stood there ready to extend forgiveness, ready to extend mercy, ready to extend grace to this man, and he stands today ready to do the same for you. Now let me close with some concluding remarks. This story is about eternal life in God's kingdom. And Christ reveals in order for one to earn his way into God's kingdom, he must be perfect. We must recognize we aren't. Confess that. Turn to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Secondly, we should recognize the significance of God's love in relation to us. See, this story depicts the kind of boundless and indiscriminate love that is perfect. This is God's kind of love. There, there are two sides of that coin. To love all indiscriminately without limit also means... That all are loved indiscriminately without limit. While by the grace of God we love all people without discrimination, so too we must remember that we are not so bad, so unlovable, so sinful, so disobedient that God does not love us. We cannot out-sin God's grace. And that is so important for us to understand. Because love is not object-dependent. Love does not depend on the object and its worthiness, but on the subject and its willingness. Again, Christ shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let us humbly remember our need to love as Christ loves. See, just as the injured and helpless man revealed the hearts of those who passed by, so do our circumstances. Make no mistake, God, God is using all our personal and our national circumstances to help us see what is in our hearts. God uses real-life happenings to show our continual need for His saving and sustaining grace. He uses these circumstances to show us who we really are and how much we need Him, lest we perceive ourselves too high thinking we are more loving than we really are. We must understand the best place we can be is in a humble place. 
whereby we recognize we have nothing in and of ourselves, but that we are completely dependent on God. Therein lies true life. Life abundant. Life full. A life not only in the now, but also a life in that which is yet to come, that is, eternal life. How can I inherit eternal life? What must I do? Recognize you cannot earn eternal life, but you must receive it by grace. Humbling yourself before Jesus Christ and receiving Him as your Lord and as your Savior, acknowledging your sin and recognizing His forgiveness of your sin, His payment for your sin, so that you're trusting in, not in yourself or the things that you do, but you are trusting solely in that which Christ has done on the cross and through His resurrection. That is the answer to the question and the story of the Good Samaritan helps us see our need for such grace. And as we think about just the way we might approach or, or apply or respond to this, one certainly is humility and recognizing our need for a Savior. But we would love for you to come prepared next week to share with one another in what ways you loved others. In particular, identify someone in your life toward whom you need to change your heart. Are there people in your life you've put some of those requirements on? You've been discriminant in the people you love. Identify ways you can then show love indiscriminately and especially consider those on whom you have put limits. Love one of those people in a very specific way this week. And let us come prepared to share with one another how we went and did likewise. Recognizing we don't do it to earn or merit eternal life, but we do it because we've been given eternal life by our God, by our Savior, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to live like Him, and we want to love like Him, indiscriminately and boundless. May we be known for that. Father, thank You for the time that You have privileged us with this morning. A time that we sing praises unto Your name and that we are reminded of Your wonderful and marvelous grace and mercy on our lives. It is in Your name we pray. Amen.